This is Rob. This is episode 101 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. All right, the Folly Coffee Podcast is back. Today is going to be a solo episode, and you may have noticed, not the past one, but the past two weeks, there has been no episode. This wasn't really any intentional reason. I actually had some plan that I had to reschedule. Things have been getting absolutely crazy. Folly is technically just me and Jeff, so we've been managing quite a bit over the last couple months, and all of a sudden I realized, oh shoot, I don't have an episode for this week, and then the next week spirals out of co- out of control, and I go, I don't have an episode for this week either, and uh, I, 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 I take pride in the consistency of the Folly Coffee podcast. Uh, anyone that knows me or does business with me knows that I am absolutely obsessed with what is called business rhythm. In the business sense, business rhythm is that your customers, that people within a company know when and how things happen, that it is concrete, that there is no sort of confusion as to how things operate on a weekly or daily or monthly basis. And when it comes to the podcast, it is a very simple rhythm that I take pride in keeping is that we release at least one episode every Sunday. And for the first time since the launch of the podcast since September of 2018, I think it was, I missed the first ever week. So I wanted to make sure that this week did not go that way. So I'm doing a solo episode today. I actually have a lot of things I'm really excited to talk about. Also, I'm going to be recording an episode later today with Bradley from Stude Nuts. Now the Donut Trap. Excited for that one. I haven't talked to him for a minute. So I think that'll be a really good episode. He's truly one of a kind, but just to give you an idea of what we've been working over the the past couple months that have been taking a lot of time is, well, one, it's been a really, really hot summer. And uh, Filterra is the other business that I have, along with uh, Brewmaster Brandon, the cold brewing wizard in which we work with specialty coffee roasters to brew and keg specialty cold brew. And as you can imagine... This is basically the timeline of the summer from for Filterra. Uh, we had like consecutive 100 degree weeks. This was also right after everything was like officially open. The mask mandates were lifted. Vaccination rates are going up. Everything's truly open. So we went from like below average volume to peak summer volume in the period of about one to two weeks, working on the same brew system that we have had for the past one and a half years. And that also made deliveries a much bigger bigger obligation. And as things opened up, we not only resumed with our old customers, we also picked up new customers. And so a lot of time has been devoted to keeping Filterra running ahead of inventory and proud to say that we have not missed any orders to date. Some have had to been changed with different cold brews, but we've been adjusting there. So on the Filterra side, that has been crazy, but in the best kind of way. On the Folly side... Obviously, we had the Folly Coffee Hot Sauce launch in January, which has been actually really awesome. Uh, this is, I think, the first time announcing this publicly, but we actually just recently placed second in a, the nation's longest-running hot sauce competition, Zest Fest, from the Fiery Food Festival. We placed second overall as a winner in the pepper blend category. So not novelty, not specialty ingredient, 
not weird tasting because it has coffee in it, but pepper blend, which is one of the most competitive categories when we play second, which is absolutely bananas. There's some other things that I'm, I can't legally talk about uh, until it's made official that I hope to talk about on later episodes when contracts have been signed and NDAs allow for things to be spoken about. But the things I am excited about that we have been working on and are coming to fruition now is shout out to... Katie over at Angel Food opening her second location that is due to open any week. As you can imagine, post-COVID times, construction is very interesting because everyone seems to be constructing. Prices are crazy and trying to get everything lined up, but they are due to open soon. So keep an eye out for Angel Food St. Louis Park. Brian Ingram of Hope Breakfast Bar and Purpose Driven Restaurants is opening. opening <laughs> actually, that's kind of cool. Opening the second Hope Breakfast Bar over in the west end of St. Louis Park, and they are going to have an absolutely killer setup there. Uh, Zoe's launched in Minneapolis. Uh, we've got a uh, everyday espresso and batch brew, a drip coffee that we have for them on drip, and they do a rotating selection of specialty coffee roasters. Awesome cafe in Minneapolis on the south side. Check that out. And we also launched in Whole Foods. Uh, the hot sauce will be at all seven Minnesota locations uh, in theory, in the next four days. And the coffee, I think we're at a couple of the locations. I, I believe the last time I checked, it was two. And we need to go into those stores and convince them that Folly Coffee tastes as good as it does to get in the rest of those stores there. Uh, we have an awesome project we're working on with the FEMAs, which will be in, well, I should say two projects that I'm not... They haven't been officially announced, so I'm going to keep that on the down low. But that's going to be awesome. So keep, follow our Instagram Follow our newsletter so you can keep up with that. And then the biggest news, uh, I shouldn't say biggest, but definitely retail, especially being from Minnesota, we launched in Target literally today. I'm recording this on Tuesday, August 3rd. We launched in all their Twin Cities locations. I believe the number is 43 stores. So over the next few days, you should see Folly Coffee popping up on the shelf. So next time you're in Target, take a picture. Send it to me. I want to see this stuff. It's pretty cool. And obviously, Target's an awesome retailer. Being Minnesota-born, that's pretty dang cool. Uh, so as you can hopefully tell, it's been a pretty wild couple months and will continue to be a, a, a pretty couple wild rest of the year uh, managing these amazing projects. But like I like to say, I would much raz rather be busy than bored. And if you were to tell me a year ago today that these would be uh, the problems, and I say problems with air quotes, that these would be the problems that we are dealing with, I would say give me these problems over last year where you're saying, is, when are things going to open? Are they going to open? Is that 70% of our business that disappeared ever going to come back? And when it does come back, is it going to come back in the same way? So I am nothing but grateful for the intense amount of work that we are putting in, but continuing to try to push forward in a way that obviously quality being the number one focus, that will never not be our number one focus, but growing and pushing forward in a way that still we continue to improve our processes while doing so and that will so the topics i wanted to that was a really long intro but just i feel like i'm almost doing it more for myself to be able to convince myself that rob it's it's okay you missed two podcast episodes it's okay people will still listen maybe you know the people that do and uh so maybe that was more for me than the listener but hopefully if you're listening to the poly coffee podcast you might be interested in what's going on in the in the Folly Coffee world. So today's episode, I'm going to just cover a hodgepodge of topics. 
Uh, the first one, very related to what I just referenced, is growing as a business and some of the constraints that can cause and issues that come up and trying to be proactive in those issues, especially when it comes to your customers. Uh, this will go right into cash flow. If you listen to our most recent episode with Yia, uh, it definitely came up. You know, we're talking a lot about small business problems and cash flow is one that in almost every small business owner I talk to that is growing, especially growing at a fast pace. This is always an issue that comes up, whether you're prepared for it or not. And there are a multitude of ways to try to take on cash flow. And I wanted to touch on the topic today because if I could go back, I would have handled this very differently knowing what I now know. And then after that, I'm going to cover the term sales. Uh, it's come up on a lot of other episodes, but the term sales has really taken on a negative connotation. I think a lot of people picture the used car sales salesperson or the you know person that just has an incentive goal to hit and they're willing to sell whatever to whoever to be able to match goals. I'm going to touch on that topic and what I really think the essence of sales is. And then if I have time remaining in the episode. I'm interested, especially now as we're growing, we're approaching year four. January of 2022 will be our fourth year in business as Folly Coffee. And it's around this time that the brand is still being introduced to a lot of people. Most people, especially, are still having their first interaction with Folly. But for the customers that have been there since day one, this is now almost a four-year-old idea or brand to them. So I want to touch on the topic of innovation versus just addition, uh, something I see a lot of businesses do, especially on, uh, on like a national scale or a large scale, what the difference between innovation and just addition is within a business. And then if there's really time left, been putting a lot of work into our website to try to optimize it to be the best experience and also like the most optimized website possible. So if I have time at the end, I will be talking about what I've learned about website SEO and driving traffic to a website organically. So going on our first topic here, this has been something I've been thinking a lot about lately is customer service when you're growing. So when you are a new business, obviously the number one goal is growth. So in, I'm going to say January of 2018 when we launched, but really before the launch, the number one focus is obviously going to be where are future customers or who could these future customers be and trying to sell to new customers. And you have almost this singular focus as a business. And I think this is probably true for most, even if it's a purely e-commerce business or if it is a like a business like ours where we're both e-commerce and retail or if you're strictly retail that the number one goal and focus is growth in terms of number of customers and so launching January of 2018 I'm knocking on as many doors as possible I'm talking to anyone that will take a meeting I'm focusing on quality focused retailers quality focused restaurants and cafes and trying to find customers and showing them what we're doing and why I think it makes sense for what they're doing as a business. But there comes a point, and I had this harsh realization really in just the past couple months, there comes a point where growth can actually create a hindrance on your business because there is a certain tipping point where the growth 
is going to hurt your existing business. If your number one focus at all times is growing, then the customers you have are eventually going to get to a number or are going to get to a complexity of different types of customers that continuing to just try to solely grow over everything else is going to cause bad things to happen within your existing customers, whether it's simple things as customer service or being available or being able to answer emails or phone calls or being able to get to a customer when they need your help. And This has been, like I said, a big focus. And here is kind of my thoughts on the topic because now the way it happened for Folly is obviously coming out of COVID is a much different situation than is a typical business. But every business that's been around for at least a couple of years is now dealing with this. But as we come back from COVID, Our customers are, like I said, expanding in number of locations. We're picking up new retailers. We're picking up new cafes. All awesome things to happen. But looking at our retail business with the pickup of Target now selling our coffee, our retail locations have now doubled. Looking at our cafe restaurant partners, our cafe restaurant customers have now doubled. But guess what hasn't doubled? The people of folly it's still me and jeff and so we had this realization that up to this point jeff is obviously in charge of our entire coffee program so his challenges are as we talked about yesterday at the roastery that as we are getting serious volume coming through the roasters not only how are we going to handle it from a roasting perspective but he now has to really dig into contracting out coffees for a minimum of six months in the past we would be able to not have to really contract out too many coffees because if we just bought a pallet of coffee or if, let's say, Cafe Imports here in Minneapolis got a coffee, we could pick it up directly at the warehouse and we could kind of go with the flow and still have enough coffee at the roastery to be able to handle any new volume of customers because it wasn't radically changing. But now, in a period of the next three months, with the volume potentially doubling or more, now we're looking at it saying, well, what used to be enough enough coffee for three to four months. It's kind of the the most coffee we like to have on hand for any given period of time. That number has now doubled. And so because the amount of coffee to have a single skew keep the same origin for three to four months has doubled, it's no longer sufficient to be able to buy one pallet per lot of coffee that comes in or one batch of bags from a new lot that has come in to be able to pick up directly at cafe imports or be able to source just one time. And the way you have to combat this is really good volume projection. So these are the challenges that Jeff is under that, quite frankly, I'm kind of glad I don't have to deal with because he's much, much more detail oriented than I am. And his Excel game is strong and he's creating like these new forms and everything to be able to show what we've gone through, try to project out where we're going to be going. Jeff Mooney. (laughs) All right, I'm going to pause because that's Jeff calling me right now. So I'm going to pause real quick here. I swear that wasn't planned, but you literally can't make that up. Forgot I had my phone, uh, Bluetooth, hooked up to the speaker, Jeff calling with, again, some great news that I'm excited about. I won't talk about it yet because I'm superstitious and don't want to say anything before. But 
again, we're back to growth. And so Jeff has a lot of details that he has to sort through and has to create basically brand new systems of ordering, of inventory standards, of run-through rates of the coffee, managing our four retail SKUs, managing our wholesale dark roast and decaf, all while growing. So there are definite big challenges there and coffee is not something that you can really just snap your finger and you have another great coffee available that you start roasting tomorrow you have to source a sample you have to sample roast you have to taste those samples decide which one matches the profile we're looking for you have to do test roast on it to find the best profile scale that up to the commercial size batch so he's dealing with all of that and like i said i'm kind of glad that's not me and i'm glad i have jeff there doing that but on the business side it's not as obvious uh, what needs to be done when you're growing. And th- my biggest concern I've realized as we're going through this growth period is customer service because while growth is happening, it's still just us two. I'm managing the business side. And so it's essentially me doing the customer service side and realizing that now my same amount of time, which is already stretched, is now going to be st- stretched twice as thin and starting to combat ways with that. So obviously, customer service is going to be very different depending on the type of small business you have. What I am trying to figure out and am in conversations with as we grow is how can we maintain the same high level of customer service without, how do I put this? How do we, how do we maintain the same level of customer service while continuing to grow? And thankfully, shout out Mike Jones for the book recommendation. He recommended this book called Small Giants. I would highly recommend you check it out if you are a business owner or a part of a small business or just interested in successful businesses that don't prioritize growth. And that's the whole idea of the book is it basically profiles widely successful businesses that are privately owned and don't prioritize growth as their number one priority. And The big takeaway I took from this is that not prioritizing growth over everything else can create a much more healthy, sustainable business in a variety of ways. And customer service, I think, is a big part of this and the customer experience that if you are buying Folly Coffee from our website or if you are buying Folly Coffee as a retailer or as one of our cafe restaurant wholesale partners, that you're getting the same level of service that you're currently getting, but we're trying to get even better. The way we have decided to try to combat this, and again, this is still very much up in the air. We are still trying to figure out how to do this at the best level, but the number one response would generally be, we'll hire someone new, (laughs) and that would be easy to do if we had a bunch of cash to be able to throw around, but quite frankly, while you're growing, and I'm going to get to this later in the episode about cash flow, while you're growing, it's not like you have a lot of cash in the bank to be able to just hire new people to take care of the problems. So to get creative with this, we are realizing that customer service, especially on the education side, when you have a specialized product such as we do, we have high-end specialty coffee. It's not like your can of Folgers that everybody knows. You just take a scoop, throw it in the brewer, done, you're done brewing. Or it's not just your rip and tear packets that you have at offices or at restaurant service that our customers who are, so, uh, who are buying our coffees are doing so because they prefer the higher quality coffee. And part of that is how to serve it. So specifically on the cafe restaurant side, we are looking into a way 
to basically use independent people or an independent person to be able to help educate our customers and to be able to create that business rhythm. And that's the key. And I think the biggest thing we can do to improve moving forward on the customer service education side is creating a business rhythm, knowing that if you want to educate your staff on how to serve coffee, on how we source our coffees, on how we roast our coffees, best practices, the basic troubleshooting is that we have have a way for a customer to be able to place a request and be able to get a training on the schedule and to be able to continue to set ourselves apart in the customer service standard. Because if you create a purely transactional business, now if you can do this, I want to put the caveat that if you can create a purely transactional business with a product and with customers that already are have everything that they need to be able to, so let's stick with coffee here, to be able to serve your coffee at the best highest level possible, then kudos to you. But that would be such a rarity and to be, can, you would definitely at some point hit a ceiling where running into customers that need, or especially if they want to continue to improve, which is something that all of our customers have is they're not just staying stagnant. They want to continue to improve their processes is that as a supplier, we are helping them do that. So that is the major point to customer service versus growth and trying to identify potential problems because it is much more better, more better. It is much better to be proactive as you're growing and getting ahead of potential problems than to grow and then have your customers be the ones to tell you that, Hey, we're not getting the same service or Hey, this is not up to our standards. And if we're serving your coffee, we need to know how, or we need to know more about it because Quite frankly, usually the way a customer lets you know that you're not that you're not up to their standards is that they're no longer your customer, especially as you're growing with new customers. And if existing customers see that you're growing and no longer focusing or taking care of your existing customers the way you were before, then usually that's how a customer is going to tell you that the job you're doing is unsatisfactory, is that they are no longer a customer. So that would be something I would give the advice to any business that is growing is to be proactive in these decisions and start to identify that as our time gets stretched and as we have the same number of resources or people to be able to take on a much larger group of problems, how are we going to do that effectively and continue to improve our processes and improve the customer experience as opposed to making the decision that growth is our number one priority and you know we'll just do our best or we'll try to make it good enough for our existing customers and hope that they stick on with us for the long run because a long-term partnership is what it's all about and a true partnership is a two-way street and making sure that as a supplier you're not just selling them a great product that you're proud of but that you're making sure that you're seeing it all the way through to the end and that is where we're at right now and I'm sure at some point in the future, I'll be, I'll have a more concrete plan in place and I'll be able to go through the pros and the cons, the goods and the bads of everything that goes into trying to continue to improve processes while growing. And that brings me into the next topic of cash flow. Now, cash flow, we briefly discussed on Yia's episode and we thought we were going to get into a debate about our favorite candies, but because we were talking about small business problems, ended up being the full hour episode basically about that and cash flow being a big part of this. And I love the way Yia described it because it was really similar to how I thought about cash flow when I started a business is that, okay, I'm starting this business with 
uh, savings. I've got some savings built up from the jobs I've built. So I now have this like metaphorical wallet with the X amount of money in it. And for every purchase I make, I take money out of the wallet and then my customers will pay me. And then I put that money back in the wallet and that's how much money I now have to spend. Then if you grow, your customers will be paying you more money because they're larger orders or it's more customers and you have more customers paying you. But then comes in all the nuances of different channels of trade and how cash flow can start to become a constraint while growing. The first one that I learned, and I will humbly admit that I had no idea how it worked, that especially when we launched at Kowalski's and at Lund's was our our first kind of like multi-location customer, that I made the first delivery, dropped off the coffee, and I didn't completely know if I was going to be getting a check when I dropped it off or how that all worked. And so I literally delivered coffee. The receiver goes, okay, have a good one. And then I leave and I'm leaving these stores going, I wonder how I get paid here. Now, I, I, will, I will say that I did not have an accountant hired at this time. Sorry, Courtney. I'm glad I realized later that this is one of the biggest necessities for a small business that you should definitely have an accountant from the very beginning helping you with these things. But I wasn't really sure I was going to get paid. And then 30, day, 30 days later, sure enough, at the PO box, uh, listed on the invoice, checks came in. And I was like, awesome. And we were at the size that I was able to work with, with this kind of wallet model that, okay, I've got money in this wallet. I'm going to buy more coffee. I'm going to buy more bags. I'm going to sell them. And then 30 days later, I get paid and that money goes back into the wallet. But what ends up happening is that when you grow at a rate that is faster than that 30-day period is where you start to really get yourself into trouble if you aren't preparing for it. And that's where the difference between cash flow and profitability comes in. You can be selling a profitable product that every unit that goes out the door is profitable. And then 30 days later, you get paid and you make a profit on that product. But what happens is when you're growing faster during that 30-day period from when you have delivered something and to when you get paid, that's where the cash flow issues start to come in and why you'll notice that especially larger businesses, these net 15, 30, 60, sometimes even 90 day terms is a huge, huge sticking point for them. When you're small, you're like, yeah, whatever you say, I don't, as long as I get paid, I don't mind one. And then when you grow to a certain point that your bank account is not matching the sales and your accounts receivable, which basically means the invoices that had not been paid when the accounts receivable is all of a sudden larger than your bank account, you don't have any cash left. And this is the thing I'm learning the most about this year because COVID, I think for almost every business owner put a huge, huge cash constraint on businesses. 70% of our business disappeared overnight and all of a sudden these assumed sales that were happening for the previous two and a half years disappear and we've been working on the assumption that we will have X amount of revenue coming in per month and it stops coming in. All of a sudden that accounts receivable gets smaller and smaller while a lot of these bills stay the same. And there are different ways to try to combat cash flow. Uh, one of the most simple 
but potentially most deadly in the long run is credit cards. Uh, you know, you have X amount of time to pay your credit card and you can let that balance ride, but with extremely high interest rates on credit cards over time, if you're not paying it off faster than you are charging those interest rates, you're going to be spending a lot of money on interest on credit cards, but it will keep you afloat that as you run into these cash flow constraints, you can get invoices paid for the supplies and costs of the goods sold that you need to be able to operate as a business while you're waiting for these invoices to get paid in the next 30, 60 days. And on top of that, I think a key assumption I had going into business is that if it's net 30-day terms, it will always get paid within 30 days. And this I'm finding is not true. And it's not like we have a lot of customers that just aren't paying. It has happened. It is an unfortunate part of doing business that you may also have customers that run into uh, cash flow problems and aren't able to pay you on time or at all. And so you have to take losses every now and again. But in most cases, it really is just the 30 days has come up. And they just weren't aware it was the date needed to be paid. And this is where having an accountant that can do this for you, that is out there reaching out for these invoices is such a key part of a business because it can take up a lot of not only your time, but your thoughts. If you're constantly worried about getting this invoice paid, it takes up a lot of space of mind, which is crucial as you're growing and trying to stay ahead of things. And... So credit cards would be kind of the easiest way. There's also loans, which there are a number of different loans that you can seek out. That You've got your SBA loans, your small business association, which are low interest rate uh, loans that are conducive for small businesses. But these can be hard to get when you're a new business because even though it is a government-backed loan, they still require the financials to be able to show them. If you've only been in business for a couple years or if your sales are not very big, uh, if your revenue is not very high and you don't, or you don't have a high accounts receivable or collateral to be able to put up against this loan, you might not get the amount of money needed to be able to float you. And then there's also, you know, like the the lending sharks. And I kid you not, I probably get about 10 to 12 phone calls a day and probably double that in emails of people saying, do you need money fast? And what you learn about those is while you can get funded very quickly at, a, uh, at, a, at the amount of money you need is that the terms are absolutely brutal. Uh, the interest rates are extremely high and this should only be used in emergency cases. Uh, and then outside of that, it's starting to manage where you're growing and how you're growing. And this is one thing I learned during COVID is as everybody was staying at home, uh, we revamped the website and we had a lot more customers ordering online. And one of the weirdest things about cash flow is you would think that selling to a group of retail stores, let's just say 100 cases of coffee, if I'm selling 100 cases of coffee to a group of retail stores, that let's let's put an arbitrary number on 100 cases of coffee at you know let's just say $10 a case for the for easy math here because my brain is absolutely fried 100 cases at $10 a case which is not accurate just to be clear but you've got $1000 that you've now sold to a group of retail customers now let's say you turn around and sell $1000 on your website so people are paying upfront that money is transferred to your bank account within days of the purchase. 
Well, what does it matter where or how you're selling if it's both $1,000? $1,000 is $1,000. But this actually isn't true. $1 sold on our website has proven to be more valuable than $1 sold anywhere else. And that is because the cash flow. <laughs> so I'm still wrapping my head around that fact, but getting paid at the point of purchase helps a business grow in a way that's more valuable. Not to mention that this re- these uh, cases going out to retail stores, you may run into that issue where it's not getting paid on time. And then guess what? The, uh, our accountant, who does a great job at this, uh, is reaching out to say, hey, just letting you know, this is overdue by X days. Let me know how you'd like to resolve this. But then you're also paying to collect those invoices. So there are some costs associated, or I should say potential costs associated with those uh, invoiced dollars. So I'll refer to that as like invoice dollars versus like upfront dollars. And you'll find that different customers add different things to the business. Now online, it is much more expensive to acquire a new customer. And that must be taken into account too. And I've learned that the hard way, wasting a good chunk of money on on online marketing, thinking that it would just boom, 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 boom. And it just didn't. And so while it is an upfront payment, it is a higher cost to acquire a customer online versus if I'm selling to a retail store, if I'm selling to a cafe or restaurant, They have customers already coming through their doors. If you're at a grocery store, we're a limited selection of coffees that you can choose. They don't have to be familiar with your brand to be able to see it on the shelf. If it's a cafe or restaurant, you may be the only coffee served there. You may be one of a limited selection of coffees. And so obviously, if they're getting coffee there, you don't have to pay any cost to be able to acquire that customer. Whereas online, you have to get people to your website somehow one way or another. So the cost is more expensive to acquire a new customer online. And you can start to see where you can kind of spiral out of control as you're growing of how to keep cash flow managed. And I'm still working through that. And I think I had some solutions in play that I'll talk about at a later date, but that is something that as you're growing, always keeping an eye on. And like, I know QuickBooks has some good features that if you don't have an accountant, QuickBooks has features to be able to look at cash flow. Uh, I believe it's called like accrual versus actual or something like that, where one of them is the actual dollars that you've been paid. And if that's positive, your cash flow positive. And then there's like accrual where it's just everything you've sold, even if it hasn't been paid off. So it's including those accounts receivable into that. How many people have I lost at this point in this episode? (laughs) Hopefully there's at least one person out there that this is helping because I think this has been one of the hardest things to wrap my head around in realizing that this is a very important part of growing a sustainable business. Not to mention when tax season comes, I've, I've heard this horror story that let's just say your tax rate is 15% and you're growing, and let's just say you're even flat. You're even flat for cash flow. You're selling a profitable product, but you're even flat for cash flow. And then all of a sudden, tax season comes along, and you get that 15% tax bill in the mail, and all of a sudden you realize, I don't have the cash in the bank to be able to pay this. And it's not like the IRS is going to take that accounts receivable as payment, and they're certainly not going to take coffee as a payment. So it's another thing to consider is uh, taxes within all of this. That's all I want to talk about that before I drive myself insane. On to the next topic here. 
let's take back the term sales. I think sales has taken on an extremely negative connotation and I've done a lot of thinking as I'm driving around and as I listen to like podcasts or books about sales or <laughs> even I might be one of the few people, but my TikTok algorithm has picked up that I enjoy sales, that there's kind of this whole image around sales as someone is trying to take you for all your worth at their own personal benefit. And I was brainstorming, why has this happened? And I think what it is, is that as a company grows, I'm going to start the opposite. When you are a very small business like Folly or like Filterra, where there's just two of us in each of those businesses, you don't have a role. So it's not like while I'm doing sales for Folly, it's not like I'm the salesperson for Folly. You do pretty much everything. You kind of have this mutual understanding when you're in small business that everybody's kind of got to take care of everything. It's very important to establish roles within that so that as kind of these jump balls come up for like who should be doing this and taking care of this, that you know who within your organization is. But there are also businesses where you're the sole owner or you're the sole person and you're doing absolutely everything. The opposite happens as a business grows. So as you get to these massive, massive companies, let's say 5,000, 10,000 people plus, every single person as a new hire is made has a more and more specialized role. As you get into a large company and you're hired to do sales, your one goal is sales. Your goal is not customer service. Your goal is not marketing. Your goal is not product integrity. And hopefully you sell something that you care about, but it's not even necessarily a prerequisite that you care about what you're selling. And if you're a good salesperson and that isn't a big deal to you, that if you don't care what you're selling, you're just going to go after whatever you could potentially make the most money in. So when you use that logic, what happens is the best salespeople end up selling the most profitable or the best money-making opportunity, and then they're just out trying to sell as much as possible. And in many cases, they don't really care about what they're selling or they don't even use or wouldn't even recommend to their own friends and family to use this product, but it's an opportunity for them to make money. And as a consumer or as a buyer you run into more and more of these people because larger companies have the ability to hire massive sales forces. So when you are dealing with somebody that is in sales, you are more likely than not by the sheer number of sales reps out there for large companies versus quote unquote sales reps for small companies, you are more likely to encounter somebody that has the single-minded goal to make as much money possible as a salesperson. Joe Morocco, in our most recent episode, had an awesome insight that I literally interrupted him, and which I'm being told is not uncommon in some of my interviews, but I had to interrupt him because he said, 100, 150 years ago, marketing didn't exist, especially pre-internet uh, the food system really didn't become a national food system until like the 50s or the 60s. Prior to the 30s, the 40s, you really didn't have many national brands. And so marketing wasn't a, that big of a thing because if you had something that you needed as a consumer, you go to the store or you get a product locally because you were it was a more localized community base. 
and you just picked up the product you needed locally and it was probably a small business owner making it. And at the time, it's not like these people were the hashtag entrepreneurs. They were people that were in businesses because that service was needed by the community. Fast forward to now, it is the opposite. You have huge dominant national companies with huge sales forces. And so now you've got this added layer of marketing and sales built into everything. And people are being constantly barraged with infomercials, Facebook ads, Instagram ads. And it's almost like the trust has been lost. If someone is trying to tell you something, it's kind of flipped that in the... before this period of time, if somebody was selling you something, it's probably because you walked in the door and needed it and you trust this person that they're selling you what you need. Now it's flipped and you're going, what is this person's real intention with trying to sell this to me? But especially when it comes to small business, I'm trying to take back this idea of sales because I think what sales really is, and I've said this before on the podcast, is that when I'm out selling something or when I see businesses that are really killing it, especially small businesses, what they're doing is they're trying to find homes for their product where it is a better solution than what they are currently using. And you can use this across any category. But for coffee, I'm not approaching customers that I don't genuinely believe that our line of coffee would be a great fit for what they're currently selling or help elevate what their current product mix at retail. Or if it's a cafe restaurant, that it matches the quality of the food you're serving as opposed... There there are many cafes and restaurants that I would legitimately say, hey, your customers, they like paying a dollar, a dollar fifty for a cup of coffee. This is just going to tick off your customers and this is not what they're looking for. But there are many places where people are looking for an experience first. And when you can find those types of customers where their number one priority is quality, that is who I'm trying to sell to. And so when I walk in their door and I'm trying to, and I'm being the quote unquote salesperson for Folly, I'm not trying to convince them to buy this so that I can make a bonus and be able to get my quarterly payout. It's because I genuinely believe that this product would be a better fit or an upgrade to what they're currently doing. Or if it's a new place opening that our overall product offering or whatever they're doing, that this is going to be an awesome fit for what you're trying to accomplish as a business. And that is I think the essence of really, really good sales is that you're trying to improve what they're trying to accomplish as a business. If you walk into a door, even if you're a small business, you're insanely passionate about your product, but your number one focused and your number one focus in having a meeting with someone is to sell your product because you want to sell more product ironically, you probably won't leave there happy because if you're just talking about why your product is awesome or why you're awesome or why the business is awesome, your business, I should say, then that person's probably not going to be terribly interested because there's so many options out there. But if you are approaching someone and you are genuinely excited about what they're doing and you want to help them in their goal and what they're trying to accomplish as a business, even if coffee is just a small part of their business. That, I think, is the true essence of sales, is that you are trying to sell somebody something that will make what they're doing better or make what they're doing fit in line with their goals as a business. And so quite frankly, I don't 
I don't know if I'm giving away a secret here, but when I'm meeting someone for the first time, most of that conversation, unless they're literally at the roastery to taste coffee and learn about what we do, most of that first conversation is try to learn is like, like, what is your goal? Like, what is your vision with your business? Like, what are you trying to accomplish here? What type of people or what type of consumer or, uh, are, or uh, what type of preferences are you looking for experience? Are you looking to build here as a business when someone comes through your doors? And you also have to be self-aware that if you don't fit with that vision, just bring that up. And you can be very honest about it and just lay out why you think it doesn't work. Now, if you don't draw a, a, a strict line in the sand as a business as to what that line is, if someone says, we're going to sell hundreds of pounds of coffee a week, it needs to be at a dollar a cup, so we need the price to be at this per pound especially early early on in a business there are a couple opportunities like this that popped up that it's really hard to challenge yourself to say that's just not our goal as a business and so our business goals are not aligned because this would be far below what we're trying to accomplish in the qualities of coffee we roast also, you begin to become just ultra price competitive. And guess who wins when you're ultra price competitive? Back to the large companies with the huge sales forces that can cut deals to drive volume. Usually they're publicly traded companies. And guess who they have to answer to? The shareholders. And so this brings me back to the book Small Giants is that privately owned companies, growth doesn't need to be your number one concern. But when you are a publicly traded company and you have public shareholders that have invested interest into your business, your number one concern is making sure that those investors are making money. And when you get price competitive, those are the people you come up against and they will do absolutely anything to grow. So it is equally important when to walk away from a potential sales deal and be honest as to why as to take on a new customer that is aligned with your goals. And keeping that conversation transparent and open within this process, I think, is what sales really is. And I wish there was like a different term for it, but I hear small business owners saying, well, I didn't want to be too salesy or I didn't want to be too pushy. But for me, if I truly believe that what we are doing is in line with your goals as a business and that it would be a great partnership, I'm probably the most annoying person to talk to because once I get excited about something and I get excited about the work that someone else is doing that could potentially be a great fit, I tend to be kind of, I'll say it, annoying uh, in, in the follow-ups, but I, I need to uh, pursue those things because that's what it takes to try to get these customers because great customers, guess what? They've got a lot of people knocking on their, do their door and this goes full circle back to customer service that not only do you have to close the sale, but you need to make sure that <laughs> as new suppliers and new people continue to knock on the doors of these customers, that you're taking care of them in a way that it, it's not just the one thing. It's not just your product and it's not a transactional relationship, but you need to make sure that as every new person walks through that door and tries to talk to these customers, that your customer is taken care of in a way that they say, no, we're happy with our current supplier, <laughs> which I don't like hearing when I'm talking to new customers, but every time I hear that, I try to ask, hey, could you like let me know what they're doing as a supplier that is making you like, 
not even consider a new one because I'd love to learn more and grow as a business ourselves. And I love to hear about industry best practices. I think that you're killing it. And as we can learn anything more and just basically never being satisfied with the current level of product or service that you have. It needs to be a constant evolution of a business and not just growth as a number one as a number one goal. I don't know if that was enough to take back the term sales because I think it has grown such a negative connotation that that's a difficult one to really take back. And at the end of the day, especially with the advent of the internet and digital marketing and but wait, there's more. And, you know, getting ads for free sunglasses, just pay shipping and handling. It's, it's most offers are not what they seem. There's usually things built in, which causes a distrust with the consumer. And so great sales, full transparency and honesty in the whole process is absolutely key to have a great relationship with your customers, to have them taken care of, and also know that they can reach out if they're not happy, which I'll state it here that if any uh, Folly customers are listening and they say, hey, you know what? This could be a little better. Hit me up for real because we actually love that stuff. I'm not being pandering. Any opportunity that comes up, we want to jump on it. And it's crazy when you do uh, online especially. Like, Thankfully, I had a customer reach out online. He's like, hey, it was my first time buying Folly Coffee. I actually have been in website design for... 20 plus years. I'm retired now, but uh, I just took some notes. If you want them, let me know. And I was like, hand them over. And he gave me this long email with like every step of the process. And he's like, I'm really, and he was really cool about it. I want to make that clear is that he was like, I can't wait to try the coffee. It sounds like what you guys are doing is really awesome. But as I was checking on the website, here's just some things that I think could be helped. And I'll tell you what, I was able to implement every single change that he had in there and the overall experience is better. And as the creator or being on the kind of like website owner side, I don't know that I would ever see those things even if I checked out myself, which I do like at least every month as I try to like test buy a bag of coffee. But when you get used to something, it's kind of hard. Well, what's the, the, the phrase? It's like it's hard to see the forest through the trees, sometimes having a different set of eyes on it can be that. So we genuinely do seek that kind of feedback. Next topic here. Innovation versus these last two ones will be much shorter and much long, uh, less long-winded than the previous topics. But uh, things that I've been thinking about as we grow uh, at, and, and is innovation versus addition. And I'll explain what that means, what I mean by that and uh, website SEO and traffic and some really key valuable takeaways that are more simple than I thought, but require a good amount of work, uh, but are also like organic and not paid for, which is valuable to any small business. So innovation versus addition with this, I specifically mean products. Um, shout out Mike Odierna, still a good buddy of mine from my Sam Adams days. He did this absolutely incredible presentation about innovation that I will never forget. He pulled up a case study about toothpaste. I'm like, what's up, Mike? We're launching a new beer. Why are we talking about toothpaste? And he starts off this whole presentation to the entire division and says, whatever year that toothpaste started being popular, you had basically crest. And then after that, you had Crest and just whatever other brand was out there. And then you have Crest and another brand and another brand. So all of a sudden, you went from one brand of toothpaste to four. 
and then five. And then let's just say you kind of cap out at five at most stores. Well, what happens as time goes on? Yeah, uh, Crest comes out with a second type of toothpaste. The competitor comes out with a second type of toothpaste. The third, fourth, fifth come out with a second type of toothpaste. Now you've got 10 toothpastes on the shelf. And over time, your goal is just to take up more and more of that shelf. And you're trying to beat the competition to take up more of that shelf. And all of a sudden, every single brand has 10 types of toothpaste and you've got an option of 50 toothpaste. Well, at what point in that process is innovation no longer occurring? It's an easy argument to make that from one type of toothpaste to a second type, it's innovation. It's the first product of its, of its kind. Most competitor launches after that will probably be pretty similar to whatever they launched. Or if someone has success within that category of toothpaste, you're going to try to create a product really similar to that successful product. And then by the time you've got 50 different toothpastes on the shelf, at some point there is not product innovation happening. It is just addition. It is addition of product for the sake of adding, for the sake of taking up more shelf space, or quite frankly, it is much, much, much easier to sell a new product versus an existing product. But as you become a longer running business, launching a new product, getting more placements, and having the newness of a product and getting the sales from the newness of it is not a great long-term strategy because eventually you're just going to be kind of either your your goal is to, t- if you look at the entire pie, let's just continue with to- toothpaste here. If you're looking at the entire pie, the pie chart of sales within toothpaste, when you're no longer innovating, you're just attempting to take slices of the pie. As competition increases, they're also trying to take slices of the pie. All of a sudden, you're going from a big chunk, nice, Thanksgiving-sized slice of pie to the little sliver that you take when you still want dessert, but I'm on a diet, so I just want to taste it. I do that, but I end up eating four of those anyway. But you go from the large slice of pie to the tiny little sliver, and every product you release after that is going to be a smaller and smaller slice of the pie if you're not truly innovating. This can be very tempting within coffee specifically because There are so many different varieties of coffee. There are so many different processing methods. There are origins. There are different flavor profiles, roast levels, that it is very tempting to just release new products all the time because it's much easier to sell a new product than an existing one. But existing products and customers that are buying your existing product are more valuable than someone who might buy something only because it's new. Because there are several customers especially in coffee, like shout out coffee nerds, I'm one of them, that they want to buy only new coffees. And it might be really gratifying to get that customer to come in for that one bag, but then what is your cost of acquisition of that one customer? Innovation is something to be taken very seriously, that as you're considering expanding and growing as a business, and hopefully you're in the position that you have a great selling product and retailers are asking you what is your next launch, that you are being very cognizant of just adding products versus true innovation. Uh, I would say our first real innovation, we launched in January of 2018 with the House Bean, the Classic Joe, and the Winer. The thought process behind this was, I considered at the time the three major flavor profiles of third wave style light roasted coffee to be your kind of 
your fruit forward coffees, typically, uh, typically naturally processed, your like nutty chocolatey coffees, typically like central South American, and then your really bright, high citrus, high acidity coffees. So we launched under those three. As those three started to sell pretty well, the the, the question started coming, hey, we want a fourth skew to carry on the shelf. And then also on the other side, hey, do you have an espresso? And espresso, I won't consider so much of an innovation, but I think the way we did it was innovative. And I'm not claiming to be like Apple level innovation, but the way of taking a single origin, roasting a portion of it dark, a portion of it light so that you get a nice balanced shot of consistent espresso while still being single origin and like third wave and kind of the intentionality behind it. That was our fourth launch. And so that SOB espresso being on the shelf was unlike anything else on the shelf. That is considered to me a product innovation. Why I was comfortable launching a fourth SKU and not just like adding another one that's like this tastes like this now. But after that, you go, okay, well, I still think, and I, you know, there's tons of arguments to be made against this, but those three dominant flavor profiles, the SOB espresso, then comes, hey, we have an opportunity here that we're selling well online at retail that we have this opportunity to potentially suggest another product. And this is kind of where hot sauce came in. Uh, I definitely didn't go into the hot sauce as like, hey, we need a fifth product. Let's see if hot sauce will work. It truly was me and Kevin messing around, uh, making some content and realizing that the sauce tasted awesome. But it was a part of the consideration of should we launch this product at all? Does this product currently exist on the market? Is there anything, let's, and at the time, and still kind of is focusing locally on Minnesota, is there something on the shelf here in Minnesota that is really similar to this? And as we go out, we go, well, there's definitely not a hot sauce made with coffee. The flavor profile is unlike anything out there. This feels like a true innovation. And I will say with that, that the coffee hot sauce is probably our most innovative product. Uh, not that innovation alone is a good thing. You can have lots of innovation on a bad product and it doesn't matter. It's not innovation for innovation's sake, but this isn't simply a product addition because we have an opportunity to sell another product. And you can get away with that for a long time if you have good sales. But what ends up happening is that as you get more and more SKUs on the shelf or you're selling more and more SKUs online or you're selling more and more offerings to cafe wholesale, whether it be private label, different blends, different roasts, that over time, this is going to add a lot of stress, a lot of stress on your operations and it will start to decrease the effectiveness of your operations. So addition as a long-term strategy will not only decrease the slice of the sales pie that you are taking at any given sales channel, it will also increase the stress on operations and logistics. Hot sauce, I looked at it and I go, I feel like this is a true innovation. Uh, operationally, we were able to find a co-packer that can match our quality standards and flavor profile. So it doesn't add stress to our logistics and operations. Uh, we're working with the same distributor for the hot sauce as we do with the coffee. So it's a very simple launch. And these are the types of decisions that should be made when considering new product launches. We do have a new Folly coffee coming out this fall. I, I'm not going to give out any details of it yet but when considering 
Should we add another coffee? We took a lot of time to think about the why of it. Why are we launching another coffee? If the answer to why you're launching another product is we need it, we need another product, the retailers are asking for it, we have an opportunity to increase distribution within these stores, I would hesitate or at least pause to try to improve the product, change the product, or whatever it might be. I'll talk more about this product launch later, but definitely something we seriously took into consideration of how we're doing it, why we're doing it. Is it different enough, not only from our current products that we're not just going to split up our current customers among another coffee, but that we're going to attract new customers, that it's an offering out in the market that I haven't seen anything quite like it before in a number of ways, whether it's packaging, whether it's communication, or just the approach we're taking to this coffee. Uh, and I'll leave that at that. It's just as you're growing as a business, it is very tempting to just increase your number of SKUs or increase your offerings or create a big store uh, so that anybody seeking anything could find what they want. But it's more valuable to have a more concise and I guess concise is the best word that you have enough offerings to fit a number of demands from your customers but don't start offering products just because other people are asking for it. Stay in line with what you're trying to do as a business. I love psych studies for anyone that listens to this knows. And this really interesting study they did is how people make choices. And this is very relevant to food, especially for those of you who sample in stores. The study they did is they put a table of jams out on a grocery floor. And they did a random sample, you know, just literally whoever was walking through at whatever time. One table, they had, I believe it was 17 different jams they were offering. The other table, they had three jams they were offering. Which one do you think sold more? You might argue, well, if I got to a table with 17 jams, then they would for sure have something that I would want. So that's the one that's going to sell more because they definitely have the product that someone's going to be looking for. The opposite happened in this study is that the table with only three jams sold exponentially more. And the explanation behind this is as follows, is that humans, when making decisions, subconsciously consider opportunity cost. The term pick your poison, it is much easier to make a decision when there's two bad options. Because if I choose this bad option over this one, the first one, I go, well, I'm not mad I chose this one because the second one sucked too. The opportunity cost is very low. Choosing between two amazing things is the hardest decision a human can make because what they gave up was a high opportunity cost. It was a high value thing that they gave up. Well, imagine walking up to a table with 17 great options and hopefully as a business, you're not releasing bad products. Maybe that's maybe that's some weird marketing strategy as you go, this one's way better than this one, so choose that. But if you're walking up and there's 17 amazing options, when you choose one of them, you just gave up 16 options for delicious jams. But if you're at the table with three, you pick one, you only had two other ones, and the opportunity cost is lower than if there's 17. So if you have a store or product assortment that is way too many selections, you can actually lose customers because it's such an overwhelming experience because you're thinking about all the things that you didn't choose as you were going. 
I thought of this literally just now on the spot. This could be why you see like especially soda brands like Coke or Pepsi. It's not like it's Coca-Cola lemon lime. It's Sprite or it's 7-Up. It's not like it's Coca-Cola you know, Dew flavored, whatever Mountain Dew is. It's Mountain Dew. It's a separate brand because you're choosing from that one brand. Maybe that's part of what goes into that decision to release things as a new brand. Even though Coca-Cola and Pepsi are extremely strong, strong brands, it would make sense to release a different product under a different name because then they're not choosing between Coke or the 18 other options. But like I said, when you get to be that large of a company and you have the power to add new products at will, addition becomes a very, very compelling thing to chase, especially when you're answering the shareholders. I'll finish this episode on website, SEO, and traffic with just some simple points that I've learned as to what I think the most effective ways to increase your SEO, which is search engine optimization, essentially how high, let's just say Google, it's pretty much just Google you're searching on, how high on the Google search ranking are you landing? If you're not on the first page of Google rankings for specific terms, especially if it's your business name, you're in rough shape because you're not going to find any new people. The only people who are going to find your business through Google is someone going specifically looking for your company. So obviously like Folly Coffee, we are on the first page. We're the first option. But then you start to search things like Minnesota Coffee. And I believe last time I checked, we were on the first page. But then you start searching for other things. Best coffee roasters, coffee subscriptions, you know, more general and more vague. The higher you can get on those pages, the better and the higher likelihood of finding a customer that's totally unaware of your brand or not local to you. Now, there is paid search, but the way I like to think about paid advertising is if I saw it, would I be compelled to click on it? For Google search, it can work because it puts you right there if you have something that they're looking for, it's right there and you do have a chance at capturing their attention. But for like paid ads and things, you need to have a really effective ad because people are getting smarter and smarter realizing that they're paying to put this in front of me. Social media is realizing it, that they need to be transparent. So it says sponsored or you're required to have hashtag ad on any of these sponsored posts because people are getting really smart and sniffing out these posts that are not organic and people want organic offerings when they're looking at and I don't mean organic coffee I mean literally like organic search or it's on their feed or whatever it may be and so the the two things that I have found to be the most effective for SEO is the number one would be backlinks and what backlinks are to my understanding there's probably somebody out there in digital marketing that could thrash this apart but my understanding of backlinks is how many external websites link to your website and how much traffic do those websites get a lot of what search engine optimization is is all it's really trying to do is figure out how legit is your website when minnesota monthly listed us among six it was like six minnesota coffee roasters to know minnesota monthly is an extremely popular website frequented by tens of thousands of people every month probably even every week. And so when a company like that has a link to your website, Google goes, oh, this website, follycoffee.com, is on this super legit website. It must be pretty legit. And you start to move up in the rankings. Now, those are far and few to come by. And you hope to have notable events that you can release a a press release and be able to have newsworthy things getting linked to your website. But what I'm learning is 
blog posts, specifically other bloggers writing about your product, is also really effective. Uh, there is this service called Haro, H-A-R-O, help a reporter out. Just Google help a reporter out or just H-A-R-O and it'll bring you to the site and you can sign up for their newsletter and what they do is people who are looking to write about things, they put out a request through Haro. If you sign up for their newsletter every day in the morning, afternoon, and evening, you get an email from Haro saying, here's all the things people are looking to write about. If you can find articles specific to your product or your offering, you can respond to that and say, hey, I'm actually in the industry or I've been in the industry or I have knowledge on the topic you're looking to write about. I'd be happy to interview for this or I'd be happy to offer a suggestion for a product for this. And it's a lot of work and you most of the time don't get responses. But when you do and they blog about your product, your, your website is then linked on their blog and it's another backlink that's uh, backlinking to your website. So a lot of work involved with that one, but it is, it's a free service. You're helping bloggers out, so they're often appreciative. Usually all they require is that you send a product sample if you are a product or if it's a service, just that your knowledge or that your credibility is high enough that it helps the legitimacy of their article. And that is a great way to be able to increase traffic to your website, whether it's specifically from their blog, that they're clicking from the blog or from an article to your website, but also it helps with your SEO on these Google search pages that the more websites that backlink to yours, the higher in uh, those search rankings you will be. And then the second one, and we're really just getting started on this, is blog posts. And this is something I've learned (laughs) A lot about you know when you go to a recipe and this is like a meme all the time on TikTok and you just see memes about this where it's like oh you want to learn how to bake make a baked potato well when I was three my dad taught me and you're like why do they write these long winded explanations of their articles before just giving you the actual recipe and the answer is almost unequivocally SEO you are trying to rank higher for specific terms now. You've seen a lot of blogs run wild with this and they have articles that are almost unreadable because they can you can almost tell that there's a specific phrase they're trying to rank for on Google. Like let's say I'm trying to rank for Minnesota coffee roaster and I wrote a blog about being a Minnesota coffee roaster and my first paragraph was like, Folly Coffee, a Minnesota coffee roaster, is proud to be a Minnesota coffee roaster because as a Minnesota coffee... And you'd be like, what? this is the most poorly written article possible. It's probably because they're trying to rank for those terms. But Google has actually gotten so smart with this that if you use the term too many times, they actually flag your article and they push that article down. But if you have a topic you're passionate about, you're knowledgeable about, a blog post that your website visitors would actually want to read, and it has terms related to what you do as a product or service, this is another effective way to be able to move up in those rankings. And generally, I believe it's recommended that you have at least like 900 characters in a good blog post. And so when I'm looking at it, I go, well, we do need more education. Like I to bring this full circle to earlier, that education is such a key component to the full Folly Coffee experience that as an online visitor, you know, I'm if you're not local or if it's not, I'm not coming over to your house to teach you how to brew, well, brewing recipes and best practices are a really great thing for a customer to have directly on your website. And so we've been doing more, uh, I should say, yeah, me and Jeff have done blog posts to be able to put up our favorite recipes for different techniques. And then guess what? 
these terms that we're trying to rank for are now in these blog posts and it's helping the credibility of our website. And then also the more often you do blog posts, these search engines recognize that you are an active website, that you've got current relevant articles to the search term they're looking for. And it's a great way to be higher ranked for specific searches that you might not have been before. And it's much more effective than paid advertising because someone organically finding an article that they're trying to find and it's on your website is much more credible than a paid ad or a Facebook ad or like paying for an advertisement anywhere else. Not that those things aren't effective and I'm learning more about that. Unfortunately, learning about that in a very expensive way, but those two things are really effective ways uh, Getting in other articles and also writing your own articles on your website are really effective ways to increase SEO and traffic. That is going to be the end of this episode. I apologize for missing the last two weeks. I would love to say it won't happen again, but quite honestly, with the way things are going, I'm not totally sure these days, and I would much rather be busy than bored, so I'm totally okay with that. Uh, If you stuck by this long, you must be the most mentally tough person in the world. So I'm going to end it like I do every other episode and say have a nice day.